Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its sponsorship from the New York Studio School for season four. Founded in 1964 as an intensive studio arts program with an emphasis on perception, artists learning from artists, and drawing as the most direct means of describing one's ideas or experiences, the Studio School offers an array of full-time and part-time programs that prioritize small classes and individual guidance from dedicated instructors distinguished in their fields. It is located in the heart of Greenwich Village in a national historic landmark building that was once home to the original Whitney Museum of American Art. The school invites you to join its free public programming, including the evening lecture series, which for more than half a century has been a cornerstone of the New York City art world and can now be experienced worldwide via live streaming. Visit nyss.org to enroll in classes, see what's on in the gallery, register for evening classes, and more. To learn more about full-time study at New York Studio School, schedule an in-person tour or a virtual meeting by emailing info at newyorkstudioschool.org. I figured for obvious reasons this week we won't publish a new episode, but rather take a look back at an episode from last season with Meg Lionel Murphy, where she speaks about the after effects of domestic violence and PTSD. Thanks so much for listening. Last season, when I shared my story with the Art Career Podcast, I was preparing for a solo show that was months and months and months away. The show finally opens next month at the Museum of Wisconsin Art satellite location at the St. Kate Art Hotel in downtown Milwaukee. The exhibition is entitled Ecstasy and Escape, and the work builds off of what we spoke about in my episode here. It's a year's worth of painting that grapples with how an experience of violence ripples forward forever in a life and manifests in feelings of both horror and ecstasy post-escape. In the time since this episode aired, I've also become pregnant, and so I've been painting giants on giant canvases while becoming something of a giant myself. I'll give birth shortly after the show opens, which is terrifying. 
You know, I feel so honored that you are rerunning my episode within what has been a particularly good season. I've been listening carefully to the way motherhood sneaks into the conversations with women artists. That episode with Jenna Gribben was just so good. And it makes me all the more thankful you continue to engage with arts professionals at all stages of their career. It's been so validating and meaningful to have a place in your community as an emerging artist. Thank you, Emily. This episode of The Art Career is intended for mature audiences as it discusses topics that can be upsetting, such as emotional and physical abuse. Content warnings for each episode and confidential and free resources for survivors can be found in the episode notes. This podcast or any materials should not be consumed as medical advice, nor is the information a substitute for professional expertise or treatment. Meg Lionel Murphy paints a dream world where suffering transforms femme bodies into a monstrous size so that their pair must be seen, felt, and acknowledged. Murphy received a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, with three majors, art, art history, and English literature. Additionally, Meg studied classical oil painting in Florence, Italy. After graduation, Meg worked as a children's illustrator, co-founded the literary and art magazine Paper Darts, and co-directed the arts and social justice nonprofit Pollen Midwest. A diagnosis of severe PTSD from domestic violence led Murphy to leave her career in publishing to focus on painting and healing. She moved back to her childhood home in rural Wisconsin, where she started painting in her father's junkyard in a studio shack that was converted from an industrial cooler. As her art took off, she moved her studio to an old storefront that was built as a church in the 1880s. Recent solo shows include Traumatica Dramatica at the Untitled Space Gallery in New York, Interior Violence at Co-Exhibitions Gallery in Minneapolis, and Solo Booths with Spring Break Art Show, New York and Los Angeles. Recent group shows include 10 at 10 at the Wisconsin Museum of Art, Pleasure Garden at Lori Shapiro Gallery, Los Angeles, and In Her World at Volts Clark, New York. Her painting has been acquired by the Minnesota Museum of American Art. Her artwork has been featured in a variety of publications, including Hyperallergic, Bitch, Artnet News, and Forbes. Hi, Meg. Welcome to the Art Career Podcast. Hi, thank you so much. You know I'm a huge fan of yours, so this is just an incredible honor. Well, this is so cool. Meg reached out to the podcast a month or two ago, and we immediately <laughs> liked each other. I think that we can we can both agree on that. We started talking and very soon after we began our dialogue and friendship, we discussed how wonderful it would be for Meg to be on the podcast. I fell in love with her work. And after really 
getting to know her work, Meg opened up to me about her story. So thank you for being here. Thank you for making the time. Where are you right now? I'm at home. I live above my studio, so I'm in my bedroom in rural Wisconsin. And what are you in terms of working on right now? You're in rural Wisconsin. You have your own storefront space at this point, right? Give us just a brief synopsis in terms of where you are physically and what you're working on. Yeah. So I have a storefront in this tiny, tiny town in rural Wisconsin, and the whole first floor is my studio right now. And I'm working on a really big solo show. So it's the biggest space I've ever filled, and I need this huge space to kind of make these big pieces. And I, you know, I didn't exhibit as much this year as I have in the past because I've just been living in my work and painting slowly and really imagining this world, making it more rich, living in the world almost like it's a video game. I set myself in there every morning and I just go rummage around this world I've created. And I'm kind of bringing our world into that world by collecting real furniture, doll furniture, and that's all inspiring the pieces. So it's a very complex system that I've created for myself to make the work that I am, but I couldn't afford to do it anywhere else. That's why I'm here. It's affordable to make work in rural Wisconsin. I think many of our listeners understand exactly what you're saying, and that's just so wonderful that you found a space that you're comfortable in, that you, you can make work on such a large scale. All right, Meg, so your art has been a channel in which you've shared with the world the pain you've experienced as a domestic abuse victim. Do you prefer victim or survivor? I like victim, actually. This is the first time you've spoken publicly, uh, certainly on a platform such as this, about your experience. Before we really start, what moved you to finally share the story behind your art publicly with us today? Well, you know, it is such a common problem. It's so prevalent, and yet we barely talk about it. It. I was just refreshing myself with the statistics this morning. Half of non-binary and trans people will experience domestic violence, one in four cis women, one in nine cis men. That is so many people. Even if you just think about the art world itself, how many people that are painting or making work have experienced domestic violence, I'm surprised it doesn't come up more overtly more than it does. And I'm hungry for people to talk about it. Talking about it with other victims and survivors has been so therapeutic for me and being explicit about it in my work. I was shy at first, but I'm getting more and more comfortable talking about it, being honest about where it comes from. And I'm just finally healed a little bit more so I can talk about it without it crushing me for days and weeks at a time. Where would you like to start with your story? What would you like to share? At what at what point would you like to start? You know, I started, you know, I, I went to school for art, art history and literature, and 
I was so excited to begin painting when I graduated, uh, but I actually got married right when I graduated. It was the worst decision I ever made. <laughs> and my ex-husband is the person that I was abused by. And I, I was thinking about this one moment where he, we were just married. We were, I was renting this apartment from a professor that was away in Germany. And it was just filled with books. I had a little studio set up in our living room. And I was just painting right after we got married. And he turned and looked at me and just goes, I am so much better than you. And I just froze. I don't even think I said anything. I just, just took it. And it became very apparent that I was not going to be able to paint in that relationship. It really upset him. And I think that's very interesting that something that gives you so much joy and freedom and exploration would be so threatening to somebody that is an abuser. Was he an artist as well? No. So I am I've been diagnosed with, you know, neurodivergence. I I am definitely ADHD with autistic tendencies and I really gravitated towards the engineers in college, strangely. And so all of my friends were engineers. He was an engineer, very linear, very, just very different than I was actually. But I felt comfortable with him for some reason with that background, um, originally at least. Uh, so no, not an artist at all. <laughs> so he says this to you. And I guess my question was, you know, was he sitting there painting next to you when he said, I'm so much better than you. But really, no, he said at large, I'm so much better than you. So that was, would you say that was your first red flag immediately after getting married? It wasn't. You know, it was a very long process. He was the kindest, sweetest, most outgoing, gentle person, I thought. My Family loved him. My friends loved him. I loved him. And I think that's important and surprising and very common for the person to be so lovely, seemingly. And it was a very slow build. It started with subtle comments like that. They, they became very common, just like very direct put downs, like almost as if it's feeding an ego, like by putting me down, he might get a little bit of a boost. And I think we're taught that we have value. You know, we, we do. I, I thought I had value at first. And I thought, how dare you speak to me this way? But it just opened up something inside him. And it was just never the same. And it got progressively worse and worse and worse to the point where I know I could have died in that relationship. They say that if there's a gun in the house and there's domestic violence present, you're 500% more likely to die. <laughs> when we went to sign our divorce papers, he bought a gun on that day and told me. So I didn't show up to sign them. And we didn't get divorced for years because he would threaten me really with in different ways. So yeah, it just kind of snowballed and kept getting, prog getting progressively worse until there were visible wounds nobody would have really known. And I almost feel lucky that it got to the point where there were physical 
example, like 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 evidence, really. Mm-hmm. And so, leading up to that, it felt as if it was a secret between the two of you. And I think what I'm understanding from what you're saying is when you started seeing physical evidence, that's obviously when friends and family started noticing. Yeah. I remember one specific day I had been hit over the head with a lamp, which I've actually painted into a painting before, but like a big ceramic lamp, quite heavy. And it just got smashed across my face. The light bulb broke, part of the lamp broke, and I had cuts on my face. And I had to go to a meeting for this literary and art magazine that I had founded right out of college. And I got there and they were like, oh my God, what happened to your face? I'm like, oh, it's the cat. The cat scratched me because I didn't want anyone to know. And again, it's so common. I've heard this story from so many other people. He had made it so he was the most important part of my world. I it was there was a recession. I didn't have a job out of college. Even when I would find like a server position, he wouldn't want me to take it. He said it was beneath me or him. And I, I grew up doing that. So it was like very not the case, obviously, but he would just he he wanted me to just be at home and stay home. And that was never my plan, never something we talked about before we got married. And if I would get any money for like a design job or something, he would take it. I didn't have a bank account. So I just, it really, it was almost impossible to imagine living without him. Everything I did, I had to ask permission for everything. Something I still do today, like I ask permission for things like, I'm going to do this. Is that okay? Is this okay? Can I do this? Can I do that? He just taught me that I needed to ask him to do anything. And so I thought I needed him to survive. I didn't know what my life would be without him. And we used to get in these fights and our upstairs neighbor would call the police on us. And in Minnesota, you are supposed to arrest somebody. Like if you, if a domestic violence call happens, they are supposed to arrest somebody no matter what, take someone out of the home. And the first time it happened, the police came in and separated us and said, you know, one of your neighbors believes you're being hurt. Are you being hurt? And it was a particularly bad day because his employer is a national was a national company and they had announced they were going to do layoffs. So he was worried that he was going to lose his job, which is obviously like a huge thing I think about anytime you hear a big company like that firing mass layoffs. It just the repercussions are so scary. But so he was beating me quite badly that night. The police came in and asked me if it was happening. And I said, no, no, we were watching a movie. They must have heard the movie. Absolutely not. Like he just had a bad day at work. If they heard any arguing, like absolutely not, did not hit me. No way. Absolutely not. And they asked me for like a very long time. They brought in a woman police officer. Did he hurt you? No. Which is maddening, you know, to think about it now. But, and so then I was terrified the police were going to come again and take my life source away from me, someone that was in charge of my life. I 
So I would just learn how to fight silently. Like these, I almost think of them as like silent operatic ballets now because like if you would hurt me, I would just be very quiet. I would do everything in my power not to scream out because nobody can know. I needed to protect him for some reason. So yeah, even, even when my friends started knowing what was happening, it still took a long time for me to leave. I'm just, you know, obviously processing everything you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I think this dialogue is obviously going to move a little slower than usual, my usual interviews for obvious reasons. And I, you know, as I'm hearing you speak about this, I think it's so important to say that there's no perfect victim. And I guess so many of our listeners, first of all, will understand, you know, and have been through something like this to some extent. And I think it's important to not, you know, go too deeply into the moments that this is happening. But I think there's a lot of stigma around what this looks like and how this happens, you know? And I just, you know, pre the cops showing up, what is that what is that looking like in your home? Yeah, and I I thank you for asking that because I think I li- I listen to and read a lot of content about domestic violence and people do not often talk about the explicit violence and it's so strange to live in a society that reeks of violence. I mean, the United States is a violent country. The media we consume is violent. The idea of masculinity, the way it's fed to us is extremely violent. I I it's strange that we are so comfortable with digesting violence in all forms and not look at something so common so in front of our faces and look at what that really looks like. And it's interesting too for PTSD, the way it works is the adrenaline is so high, something I never would have imagined. I, you know, I had experience, I grew up kind of like lower middle class, rough and tumble. Like I got shoved around a lot as a kid. Like it was very common. There was nobody being like, don't do that. You know, it was, so I was kind of primed for this in so many ways, but I was not prepared for the level of adrenaline that comes with being beat up. It is like getting hit by, I have been hit by a car actually. (laughs) It is like getting hit by a car. It is so profound to be, I can't, the bodily experience of it is almost the worst part, like what it does to your nervous system to get physically beaten up. And I don't know, unfortunately, I think a lot of men get that just in the playground. I, I have brothers, I don't know. I. I had not experienced that until I was married, and I think a lot of people don't experience it. So anyway, that when that happens, almost your memory shuts off. I, I don't have a lot of memories, thank God, because I'll remember what's, hap- what's like leading up to it, and then the actual abuse, I go blank. And I can only remember almost the very worst, worst moments, but I'll say that at the end, It was every single day, every single day I would be prepared to get beaten up. And it would be for the smallest things like 
I have ADHD, so I'm so messy (laughs) and forgetful. I cannot put a cap on something to save my life, literally to save my life. I cannot put a cap on something. And that would just bother him so much. And you, you wouldn't believe it, but me not putting a cap on something would be reason enough for him to go into a rage. Um, so it starts with a more like intense altercation and it ends with there's just no reason. There's nothing that prompted it. It's just a release for him. I don't know. I, and so I would get into the fetal position and just wait for it. Like I knew if I did something wrong, I could tell by his tone of voice, I would just get in the fetal position and just wait to be kicked or something like that. It's it's just such, it becomes so regular, so calm, so normal. And I'm just being completely honest. That's that's what it felt like. That it was, was your that was your normal day to day. And I did know that I sh- that it shouldn't be like that. He had addiction issues. And for a long time, I thought, I think this is also very common. I thought, okay, if we can fix the addiction, maybe he'll stop hurting me. So we would, I would do all this research on trying to find the best rehabs or, you know, different programs. And I just thought if I did something right, if I could just do everything right, maybe he would change and he would just be good to me. And nothing I did worked. I think. One of the best things that happened to me was he did go into rehab for an extended period of time. And it was the first time that I had access to a, any kind of money. He left me his debit cards. And I also was able to open the mail. I wasn't allowed to open the mail. So I could see what he was spending his money on. And so not only could I use – it was very empowering to be able to use a credit card. <laughs> that sounds so silly. But I, it was like a superpower to have my own way of spending. And then I opened up the statements and I could see that he was buying little tiny bottles of alcohol every single day. And he was drinking them from the moment he would go to the liquor store in the morning, drink all day at work. He had a very intense, important engineering job, would drink all day through work, would come home, go to the liquor store again, get all these little bottles, would drink all night. At first, I didn't even know he was drinking because he would do it in secret. I thought, he had a brain tumor, to be honest. I thought, why is he acting like this? Something is wrong. Something is medically wrong. I was so naive looking back, but I just, it took a long time for me to piece together what is happening. This person is hitting me. He is an alcoholic. Will it stop? No, it will not. You need to get out. It took a very, years. It took years to get to that point. But Meg, I mean, what is common about what you're saying right now in terms of addiction, this dialogue needs to go a hell of a lot deeper than it has because I come from a background of addiction. I have been in a relationship with several addicts. And one thing doesn't define a person, right? So You have an alcoholic, and I think still, and there will be addicts and non-addicts that will have a very hard time with what I'm about to say. I don't care at all. I think there has been such a level of 
excuse and permission given to the world of addiction. You know, I really, I think that although, and I'm very familiar with program and what that is and the accountability that comes with program, but I think that there, you know, I know plenty of people that have gotten sober and gotten the help that they needed to treat their addiction, and they are still horrible human beings. There is a misconception here that needs to be faced that alcoholism or drug addiction is the issue. That is not the issue. That is something that can be a part of someone either being a wonderful person or a horrible person. Alcohol and drugs are a pathway to make poor decisions. But us as adults, I do not care whether it's mental illness, whether it's addiction, whether it's a physical handicap, there is no excuse for abuse ever. And getting sober doesn't excuse the fact that you have been abusive in the past, right? I will say myself, and I have said this to you, I thankfully am not an addict. I have been abusive in the past, okay? period. That is something every day of my life, I make sure doesn't ever happen anymore, right? Because I know how much I love human beings and how much I love my loved ones. And I don't ever, I've battled mental illness. I have come from a background of emotional and psychological abuse to some extent. And there was a time where I would use those as excuses for poor behavior. And so I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent right now, but I really think this is important since we did start talking about it's like, okay, you know, this person is doing this, this, and this. And then I found the alcohol and, you know, you're going to have some people like, oh God, yeah, you know, this is an alcoholic and doesn't this just make people do the worst things? No, it doesn't. The person makes the person do the worst things. And you know what? Just like with any of us, if you find that something is making you do, if, if in fact that really is the reason, right? Like if I wear the color red, I am angry. You stop fucking wearing the color red, right? That is our responsibility as adults, not as children, as adults to make whatever changes we need to make, right? Whether that's to stop drinking, go on medication, do dialectical behavioral therapy. We all have that responsibility to figure it out. So I think so many of our listeners, including myself, understand, you know, because I've been there in a relationship, you know, if this person gets sober, we will then be able to love each other and really do this work. No, 
when this person gets sober, they're still the same person. They're just not drinking. So could the abuse lessen a little bit? Maybe, probably a little bit, right? A sober person is always more in control, but that rage, that rage is poison within a person and that is going to come out with or without alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's so true. I remember being, I was, you know, we went to Hazleton. Hazleton is kind of a nationally recognized rehab and they have a good Al-Anon system to kind of weave the family members of people. And I was sitting there in my little Al-Anon group and like, gosh, yeah, he's just, he's hitting me a lot. I think I, I was trying to say it. I'm not sure if I said it overtly. I, I think looking back, I would say it in very strange, long sentences that I couldn't, but I was definitely trying to say, this person is hitting me. Is anyone else getting hit? <laughs> like, and And nobody else was either. So it's like, it is just, I, I had to kind of understand what was happening for what reason. And, and there is no reason. I don't understand the reason. I've sat in so many groups since for some like group therapy for survivors of domestic violence. And there's never a reason. It doesn't make sense. Nobody understands why it happens. Nobody understands why it can't stop. I've never read anything that makes me get clarity on that. It's just all so confusing and sad. And I really think it takes some many people telling you over and over and over again, you have to run, you have to run, you have to get out. And somebody at Hazleton, one of the therapists pulled me aside and said, you need to run, you need to go. And I didn't for so long after that. But I think that that person saying that just was important for me to keep. It was like just putting it in my pocket to remember over and over again. And the thing that finally allowed me to leave, I think is so important. And I, I think it's something that I really weave into my paintings. And it's that I, I had a friend, you know, that I worked on this magazine with. And I'd only known her not very long, you know, but she could see something was bad. And, and when she started realizing how bad it was, like with she recognized some cuts on my face, she would say, you know, I'm here for you. I'm going to help you if you need anything. So I would call her some nights and I, when it got really bad and she would drive across town with her husband, pick me up, drive me to her house and I would sleep there. And then the next day I would try to figure out what I'm supposed to do is he, we would have conversations with his parents, with his family, with my family. What are we going to do? Is, can this stop? Will it ever stop? And it took, you know, months of even just that, me getting out of the house, like getting removed to keep me safe. His family, meaning your ex-husband's family. Yes. Okay. Yes. Many, many, many people knew by the end this was happening. And I returned to that home over and over and over again. So finally, this friend came over to my house and she said, she said, this is serious. If you do not leave him, I am leaving you. I cannot watch 
this anymore. And that moment was so important to me. She was showing me that she saw me. It was serious. She offered to help me. She said, I will do anything I can to help you. But I won't watch it. And that's scary for a lot of people to hear. And to, I'm not sure if it's something to replicate, but it really did help me. And she kept her word. She helped me open a bank account, like the smallest things. I could stay at her house whenever I needed to. She coordinated with my parents to kind of get me out for a while. I ended up getting a very, very, very tiny apartment. The best thing also she said to me was, you are going to be very poor and you are going to struggle and this is going to be hard and it's going to suck. And just get ready for that. Picture the worst apartment you've ever seen. That's where you're going to go live and it's going to be fine because you're not going to be with this man. And it was so liberating. I was like, yeah, great. Sign me up. Perfect. I do not need anything this man is giving me. I don't need any of the life that I have now. So I left with almost nothing. And I just got this tiny little studio apartment. And I lived there for years. And just slowly, slowly, slowly built a soul for myself again. Because I was just a shell of a person. And I think not only is there no perfect victim, when you are a shell of a person, you're just not fun to be around. No one wants to be around that person. And I was losing everybody. And a lot of people also, if they were kind of removed from the situation, they chose him because he's so fun. He's so sweet. He's so charismatic. I lost a lot of friends that are probably still friends with him to this day. It's just, it's the way it works often. And I take comfort in that, that I'm not the only one that's experienced that piece of it. And I, you know, also think you've spoken to this, but what's so important to reiterate is I think women, men, humans that are in these situations tell these stories and people who have not been in similar situations, you know, you're getting this hurt. How do you not leave, right? How do, how is that not? When you have become such a shell of yourself, right? And you can plug this into any trauma in life. You know, you get to a point when you've been through a certain amount of trauma where you're no longer, you're not, you're, you're not yourself anymore, right? That is what, that's PTSD, right? That's, that's what happens. You're no longer able to make a rational call about things to protect yourself. Am I, is that, do you feel that? Absolutely. Yeah. I just wasn't in my right mind. I think the only thing I had going for me almost can look bad in a certain way because I was actually operating creatively at a pretty high level. I we were making this art and literary magazine. It was getting a lot of attention. It was growing quickly. I was making these beautiful magazines. And 
when the adrenaline did something to me, when it would actually force me into this other state where I could really produce content, create a certain amount. And it was just like this release, this other plane. I wasn't painting. I was just making these magazines and running this art and literary magazine. But it, I was functioning there, which almost was a detriment to me because it's like, oh, look, at she's doing all these things. Everything's fine. But I was not functioning in any other piece of my life, especially with other people, because it's such a primal thing to want the person you love to just be good to you, to just be kind to you. And it just does something to you. It's so, it's so heartbreaking to, to just be rejected and hurt over and over and over again by that one person that's supposed to love you more than anyone. I think that our listeners will really understand what you're saying about being able to function at such a high level during such a state of survive but but it's you're in survival mode right and you there's this outlet right that you can tap into and i find the periods in my life that have been the most traumatic are some of the periods that i have my career has just gotten to a place where I look back, I'm like, how the fuck were you able to put that much time and effort? And you look at it from the outside and it seems as if I am just thriving, you know? And meanwhile, I'm suffering very, very deeply as, you know, you've shared, but one does not, you know, one is not contingent upon the other, you know, let there be no mistake. And there are people that go through trauma and don't get anything done, which is probably healthier, to be honest, right? That's, I guess, I guess, Meg, those are the healthy people in those situations. They're like, I can't do anything because I'm experienced. I'm experiencing trauma and abuse right now, you know, I think. And to to speak to something else you said, your friend that did this, there are no better human beings on the face of this earth than the human beings that do things such as your friend did. To enable someone is to do such a great disservice to their life, abuse, love, career. Enabling is staying silent. Enabling is not okay. And it's so common. And being a friend, being a true friend is doing what your friend did. I, you spoke about Al-Anon for a while. I was in Al-Anon for five years at one point. You know, I worked the steps. I have certain issues that have kind of come up in this discussion why I'm no longer in Al-Anon, but I do go to meetings from time to time. Take what you like and leave the rest. I can plug that in, you know, but when this, you know, this this concept of enabling, you know, th- this the amount of tough love that you have to have as a family member or a friend, you know, the same thing like, okay, you're drinking and I'm seeing all of this shit happening as a result of you drinking. I will do anything I can to help you get sober, but I will not be in your life anymore if you continue to drink or use drugs. 
We see that all the time. Very few people still are able to do it, but we see that happening, right? But then you flip that and you talk about your story. I have been in a situation in a relationship where my one of my closest friends, Kate, who will also be on this podcast this season, funny enough, she called me one morning and she was like, look, unless you get out and end things, I was not being physically abused, but I was in a relationship with a severe addict and there was an enormous amount of psychological and emotional abuse and neglect happening. I was a shell of a person myself. And she said, look, here's what this comes down to. I love you more than anything in the world and I will be there for you. I will put so much time and I will take it away from myself right now and be there for you. But I am completely tapping out of your life unless, not unless you you stand up for yourself because I had done that a million times, right? How many fights can you get into with an addict before you've just lost your mind? But she said, unless you completely break all ties, break up, leave your home, and it is completely over, I'm no longer going to be in your life. And just like your friend, it was funny, Meg, the next morning I broke up with that person. After almost four years of going back and forth, four different rehabs, I mean, I, I, I can't. I look back and it's embarrassing how much I thought that there was a chance for things to change, how much I thought there was a chance for me to change things. And it was the next morning. It took one person to say that. I don't care. I am out of, I am out of your life. I will not watch this any longer. And I knew, I was like, this, this woman is so important to me. I love her so much. She's so intelligent. It was like that, oh shit, like this is something... And I, and I did, I walked, you know? So, you know, you go back to Al-Anon meetings, you you know, I think there's a lot of being there for people and allowing people to come to these realizations on their own and make these decisions. I don't really groove with that a lot of the time. Like I will look at someone and be like, you're going to either fucking die or you're going to ruin the rest of your life and you're so amazing and I'm not going to watch it anymore. You need to completely end things. And we need a hell of a lot more of Kate's and your beautiful friend out there doing and saying that. And that's something, you know, my my paintings, they start small and they start growing, growing, growing and toward, start gravitating towards these other giants that have also started small, growing, 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 can no longer fit in their homes, are searching through the countryside to find each other. And it's just, that is like the real subject of the work. It's that moment of change, like that one, like, what does it take to change? What does it take in that moment with that friend that kind of guides you away from there? You, I don't know how you do it alone. And it even scares me to this day when I see it's mostly women in heterosexual relationships. They get into a relationship and they kind of close in, they kind of nest in. It's very common. And I just, it scares me. I'm like, don't lose your friends. Don't lose yourself. Even if it's a very fine relationship, it's just, I have learned how crucial and how important deep, rich, lifelong friendships 
can be. And obviously in queer spaces, they're much, I think there's much better than that at that. But yeah, it's it's absolutely crucial. I one thing too I hold close to me every day. I was walking down my street one day and I saw a sign for a domestic abuse support group. And I was like, wow, okay. I think that's me. I think that's me. Okay. So I called it up the number and they ended up giving me free therapy for years, which is amazing. And I got in this domestic abuse support group and I was the youngest person in the group. A lot of the people were probably my age now and much, much older, you know, into their 60s and older. And I looked around and I thought, oh, thank God I'm taking care of this now. Like, oh, I'll just get in here. I'll fix it up and I'll be out of here and I'll be fine when I grow up. (laughs) And I didn't realize that it's something that stays with you for the rest of your life. You don't graduate out of it. At least I haven't and I don't expect to really. Um, I'm definitely in a good place and I'm so strong now and I've experienced so many beautiful things in my life. I have a great partner, but I, it stays with me every day. I have flashbacks. I really do have PTSD, like a very severe form of PTSD and the smallest things will trigger it. And it's just something that I've come to accept and live with. And that's even in my painting, I kind of have this timeline where I start in one part of the timeline and then when they're small and then go bigger and then they get small and they get bigger, I paint in all parts of this timeline because that's how my life feels. Like I'm small, I'm big, I'm small, I'm big, I'm okay, I'm not. And it is so important to me that a victim or a survivor is able to be not okay. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why it means so much to me. We get a lot of stories about like, I have survived. I am okay. Conquering all. And it might seem like my work is that, but it's not. It's like, it's a, it's it's a accordion of back and forth. And I don't know. I find comfort in that strangely. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. We'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career Podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast. What do you think is important for people to understand or know right now based on what you've shared? I think 
it is important to be that person for somebody if you can. I think there's this book, No Visible Bruises. And it's like, I think it should be, I have it right here. I think it should be in every single classroom. I think every single person should read it. It it just goes through domestic violence and in such in from just a myriad of vantage points and it also kind of teaches you how to be that person for somebody in in, in a very like enjoyable way. It's very well written. I know that it's not always easy. I met a woman in one of my support groups. I guess it's not supposed to happen but they let her in the support group while she was still with her abuser. It's actually very not done. You're not supposed to do that, but it, it happened. And I was like, oh my God, we must save her. We have to rally together. Like somebody did this for me. I need to save her. I need to help her. So I did everything I could. I let her stay in my house. I did everything I could. And she actually had a good job and all those things. But I had to do the thing where I finally was like, if you don't leave him, I, I can't watch this. It's too triggering. It was really hurting me to just keep watching her. And um, she didn't leave. And the next thing I heard from her, her husband had burned down her house with her inside of it. I think she survived. They both survived. But it was so drastic. These things spiral so severely, so quickly. So I think it's important to not to try to be there for somebody, to be as educated as, as you possibly can about what it looks like. But it's also important to realize it's so big, it's so complex, it is out of our control. I mean, what I think one of the things we talked about is like what, you know, what is something that would be, you know, what, 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 what could help people? I have lots of ideas on that. But one thing is we don't have a social safety net in this country. So if you're leaving with nothing, you have absolutely nothing. What do you do? And, and and so I think it's an important mental exercise even to think about like, okay, if I had nothing, what would I do? If I if I have somebody that I love and they have nothing, what am I prepared to do to help them? Truly, I, I think it's important to prepare yourself because you will know someone. You do know somebody that's going through this. Well, what do you do if you're a human being that doesn't have any financial resources and is in a situation similar to yours? Where you know th- this person, their abuser is their life force. W- what is the first thing you do? Mm-hmm. There are domestic violence shelters. They're beautiful, wonderful things. <laughs> I wish they were more beautiful. I have to say, like it's interesting to me how depressing they may look. I wish we could change that, but it doesn't matter. It's just like I think it's important to get into the shelter system as quickly as possible. In some cities, that's easier than other cities. There's wait lists. It's hard to get in. You have to say the right things. A lot of times, people, even myself, won't say the right things. Like You're so used to being like, everything's fine. I'm fine. It's not that bad. I'm not a victim. I'm okay. That you don't say what you need to say. So much of the help I think I'm able to give is just walk through, walk people through what they're supposed to say in order to get the help, the magic words to get our government and our system and our nonprofits to pay attention to you and give you the help you need. But I guess that's the only thing we have is really just these tiny nonprofits that are decentralized, that are helping people escape. And it's not perfect, but it's the only thing we have if you don't have that support system, even one person. I know that one thing that helped me is when my partner was in 
rehab, I got one, I, I built a website for somebody and they paid me, they gave me a check. I took that check to my first bank, my little bank account. And I just got someone gave me an apartment with no credit and no job. Thank God. And it was month to month. And even that is like a miracle getting an apartment out of nowhere with no credit, no job. That's like that. That's what I needed. And I just had to like hope every month I could pay rent. And I barely did. I barely ate. I did. I had no money, literally just no, it was so hard. But I think even a basic social net would go so far for so many people. We we keep people in these places. And I'm sure, you know, you can attest to the fact that even in that moment of living in a probably what was a very shitty apartment with no money and very little food, it was just probably such a happier space than where you were that it it didn't matter, right? I loved it. I love that apartment. I only have good memories of that little place. And it was funny because I ended up getting this job through my little literary magazine. I was illustrating a lot of the short stories and someone reached out to me and actually asked me to illustrate the Bible for children. And I had grown up religious. I wasn't religious at the time at all, but I got the job. It took me two years to do And I just sat in that little apartment and I illustrated the Bible for children every single day of my life until finally it broke something in me. I was like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm getting paid for it, but I'm not making art. Could I like start making? That's when I started making art. I started kind of using that flat style, that illustrative style that I had used for children and kind of would make adult content that builds off of some of my experiences in domestic violence. And it's just snowballed from there, you know. So it's it's strange how things work if you can just hope that it can be better and even if there are there's not a clear path and no answers in front of you. The only thing you can do is hope that it's going to be better than whatever you're going through and I think almost always it is. As long as they don't, you know, they let you leave because it is the most dangerous when you leave. That's when like that's when my partner bought a gun. That's when I don't even like calling him my partner. My ex-husband bought a gun was when you try to leave. So it's just the odds are so stacked against you. Yeah. I, I, I think, and I think that's what stops people from leaving a lot of the time. You know, I think that that, that moment takes so much bravery. I don't even know if that's the right word. You know, I, I really don't. And I think what stops people from being vocal and having these dialogues is once you've escaped, why do anything to even bring that? But it's so essential because it's the only way these changes are made. So for you, for instance, you know, are you in a place where you no longer have contact with this person and we know you're safe right now, correct? Mm-hmm. Very safe. I even had to consult someone that I know that's a lawyer to talk about like what are some repercussions for talking about it publicly. The Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial actually had some serious repercussions for domestic abuse, defamation issues. So me even talking about this person without saying their name opens me up for a defamation lawsuit, which is just wild to me. But I think 
I, I do have evidence. I, I, luckily, I have, you know, witnesses. I have written evidence. But it is hard to document evidence. And that would be what would happen. If, if someone were, if, if, if he were to sue me for defamation for talking on this podcast, it would be his responsibility to prove that it didn't happen. But I, what is my evidence? You know, he, I didn't, do I have the picture on my phone where he, you know, my face is bruised? I didn't save any of that stuff. I didn't, people don't often do that. I know so many people that are not in the right mind to collect evidence and evidence is your friend. Like you just need every little scrap of evidence in the future. That is something else. If you're in it, anything you can think of. Even if you're not going to put it forward then just to have it and keep it. Yeah, it is every, well, evidence is everything, period. Mm -hmm. It's sad though that it has to be that way. (laughs) I wish it didn't have to be that way, but. Of course, of course. So we've talked about, you know, obviously, and all of our listeners, I hope will become very familiar with your artwork because not only does Meg have this extremely powerful story of leaving an abuser it has you know manifested itself in just such a stunning way on the canvas you know it's really there's such thick narrative within your work i don't know if you'd agree with that word i'm using mm-hmm. i love the word <laughs> You know, I know you have a literary background too, as do I. There's such thick narrative and I'm such a huge fan of your work. I hope that we get to work together eventually with your work because it is so powerful. And, you know, I think it's interesting in the beginning of the interview, you were talking about, you know, that first moment where you were sitting there painting and, you know, he looked at you and he said, I'm better than you. You know, I do not think you were painting what you're painting now, you know, and there's just been such a, you know, I would love to see the work you were creating during undergrad compared to what you're creating now. Is it important for you? So we know one of my questions was, how has this experience affected your art in every single way is the answer to that, you know? And I think that victim survivors, you know, it's it's such a powerful resource for people to have in and out of being a victim or a survivor. We were talking about women's shelters, you know, how ugly they can be sometimes, you know, it's like your work is a perfect example of something to look at to, you know, there's just such an empowering and it seems cliche to say it, but it's really true. There's such an empowering perspective of your work that just, I don't know, it's, I, I think it inevitably empowers all women, right? Period. Somehow, some way, I'm sure. Have you used your work to make change? Has there ever been any projects you've done or would like to work on in the future that, you know, would implement some of that change? Yeah, I think um, I often will, you know, use, donate a portion of sales to different causes that are local to the place that I'm selling the work. And I've been able to raise a lot of money. And, but even beyond that, I think 
just making space and time for people that <laughs> I think the surprise <laughs> of all of it is I would make the work no matter what because it really does calm me. It's like my meditation. It helps me. But it is really nice to have found people that relate to the work and are moved by the work and crying in the gallery space with another person. Many different people has been so rewarding. Just like the work itself can be something, can be meaningful, can kind of make change and be powerful like a single image. That's the kind of work I want to make and that's the kind of work that I need. Like, I'm the kind of person I think a lot of artists are. I go to a museum and I let myself cry in front of a work. I'm very moved by different work. Like, going to see the Alice Neal retrospective, the big thing. I walked in there and just sobbed, knowing that her husband burned her paintings. You look at art history, so many of our art historical giants have abused women. What does that mean? Picasso crucified his part, his, his, his wives and his mistresses, his everything. He was such a brutal person. You look at Willem de Kooning, he beat Elaine de Kooning. He, he, his, art history is built upon mutilating the woman's body. I mean, abstracting the woman's body with violence with Picasso and de Kooning and others. You look at Carl Andre, his murder of Anna Marietta, Anna Marietta. It's just wild how many men in art history have abused women and even shows up in their work. So what? why wouldn't this show up in my work? If I read their work and I see the violence, I want to show not only the violence in my work, because violence is real and it's happened to me, but also show the joy and the the world. I it's both devastating and important that I'm I'm making art in, in this idea of like another world. I think of it as like there's a whole other world out there. That's the world I'm making art in. Because I do not understand this world. I don't know how to fit into it. So I need to kind of like create this almost sci-fi universe for myself to kind of make sense of what's happened to me. And I don't know. And and then the thing is, I will say though, I did put this, I have a painting behind me. It's weird <laughs> making art and it's kind of spooky sometimes. This is just ridiculous. But I painted this painting about, it's a rural bar in my hometown. And my parents actually, I grew up in a motel. There was a bar attached to the motel. I grew up in that such toxic masculinity. You would not believe the ridiculous stuff I have seen in these small town bars. And so I made this painting. There's three women. They're kind of like tackling the bar. They're all over it. They're claiming it like a throne. There's like hot dogs and beer and cigarettes flying. And I painted this and I titled it Walking Through Hell Flames, a poem by Sylvia Plath, and, or from a poem by Sylvia Plath. This is so ridiculous. I promise I didn't do this, but it is just metaphorically ridiculous and beautiful and strange and awful. A few months later, the bar actually burned down, which is just wild. And I was able to use to sell a ton, a ton, a ton of prints to raise a, a lot of money for the victims of the fire. And it was so poetic and strange because I made that painting as a critique of the culture that happens inside that exact bar. 
the bar burns down, I'm able to kind of use my money to raise money for the people that lost their homes. And I, the town is so small. A friend of mine, her father was one of the victims of the fire. So it's like, it's just so strange how you can use your work to speak to people on a metaphorical level. And then also, if it does get money, (laughs) you can raise money, how you can kind of steer that towards a cause. It's very empowering. Meg, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, for trusting me enough to share your story, for reaching out to me in the first place. I know our listeners are going to gain so much, probably more than we'll ever even understand. I mean, this essentially, things, conversations like this save lives, right? We we know this to be true. And, and that is what you're doing by sharing. And that's what you're doing by making your artwork too. You know, you are saving lives because you are giving such a great source of empowerment to to women, all women, right? All women, because abuse, as we know, is not just physical. Abuse comes in all shapes and sizes. Abuse is control at the end of the day. And that control can manifest in so many different ways. And the only way we can combat that is to continue to try to love ourselves, right? That's, uh, it's a job every single day we have. And I'm so grateful for you. I really, really am. I'm ready to get on an airplane or get in my pickup truck and, and drive, drive out to you this summer to do a studio visit. Cause I just, I need to see these works in person. What is next for you? Where is this solo show going to be? How can people see your work? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I'd love to have you here. I will say I live in one of the most beautiful places right on Lake Michigan. I mean, not, I'm not on Lake Michigan, but I go there every single day in the summer, get in that body of water. It looks like an ocean. It's fresh water. It's just the most magical place. Um, So please come. We can go swimming. But the place I'm working with right now, I'm I'm working with the Museum of Wisconsin Art, and they have a satellite gallery in this gorgeous downtown space in Milwaukee. And it's actually connected to the St. Kate Motel. And so it's so fun because I grew up in a motel so to be adjacent to a hotel, I find fascinating. It's called St. Kate. I'm really inspired by like Gothic, weird, medieval Catholicism. So just the setting feels really good. It's close to home. It's with the museum. When my first ever solo show connected to a museum, it just feels really safe and wonderful. And I have a really kind and great curatorial staff there, which is really lovely. And yeah, it's it's a really... I have a very safe and beautiful, peaceful world to build some difficult work atop. And that's just really so wonderful. I (laughs) am so grateful to be part of that safe and beautiful world. 
for you. I already love you. I just, yeah, I, I thank you again. I could go on and on, but thank you, Meg, for being on the Art Career Podcast from the bottom of my heart. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a gift. You're a gift. Even before I was on this podcast, this podcast has been a gift to me, and I know it's a gift to others. It really is a way to make the world accessible for people that are not on a more traditional art career path, too. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com s-u-p-e-r-c-a-s-t dot com and please don't forget to rate and review every rating counts thanks so much